Hello and welcome to another weekly teaching from Vineyard Community Church, St. Louis. Boy, it's good to, uh, to be here with you and just have this opportunity to share with you. I'm grateful to God for it. So has anybody ever heard of the saying, he saw the handwriting on the wall? Okay. So what, what does that mean? Any thoughts? No thoughts or no sharing of thoughts? Yes. Okay, you see what's coming down the pike. Yeah, the handwriting on the wall. I remember one time when I saw the handwriting on the wall. I had a 6.30 in the morning meeting with uh, David and some other leaders at the church, and I was late. And so I was driving down Brentwood Boulevard, and I know for a fact that I was going 42 in a 35 zone. You need to understand that I've received moving violations in three different countries. Um, but I'm driving along in a hurry, and I look to my right, and there in a parking lot is a police officer in uh, his lovely car. And I went past, and in my rearview mirror, I saw him pull out, and I saw the handwriting on the wall. And I pulled over, and... As a result, my wallet was lighter later. How many of you knew that the uh, saying, the writing on the wall, comes from the Bible? Okay, brilliant people here. We're in this series called The King. This is a series uh, that focuses on the book of Daniel and sees what God has to teach us in Daniel. Today, um, we're going to look at chapter 5, and we're going to focus on one of the key themes in Daniel, which is that everyone must choose which king to serve, but we're designed to live under one true king, not any other ruler or rules. God gets to define who we are and what we do. So before we dive in, uh, let's pray. Gracious God, you hold our future in your hand and we entrust it to you. Teach us to hear from you. Teach us to choose humility. Teach us to follow you as our only God, and to resist all temptations, obvious or subtle, to worship other gods. And Father, bless the offering that, that people have given in various ways. We ask that you will uh, use it to advance your kingdom. Couple things about the offering. Uh, if, if you want to learn how to give online, you can go to vclife.org and uh, it will be pretty obvious what tab to click on or what box to click on. 
And the other thing is we always say that uh, the offering is for people who are committed to our church. And so if you're just here for the first time or checking us out, um, that is uh, great. We're so glad you're here, but don't think that we're uh, wanting you to uh, give an offering. So a little bit of background on Daniel chapter 5. So, historians are able to date the events in this chapter pretty accurately, 539 B.C. And this is uh, substantially maybe 30 years after what the, the events that Caleb talked about last week, which you'll hear a little bit about in this lesson. So we've skipped ahead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. New king, Belshazzar. Daniel's in his early 80s. Belshazzar is actually the co-king. He's, he's like probably second in command with his father, Nabonidus, the number one king in Babylon. But Nabonidus seems to be out and about other places, and, and Belshazzar is uh, in charge in Jerusalem. And just to clear up what seemed interesting or potentially confusing to me, but probably doesn't bother you at all, um, there are similar names. The king is Belshadar, and that means Bel, protect the king. That's what his name means. Bel was the Babylonian name for Baal, who was the Canaanite god who's a false god worshipped a lot in various places in the scripture. Daniel's name was similar, but it was different. Instead of Belshazzar, it's Belteshazzar. And I wondered, what's the difference? And finally, I figured it out. <clears throat> Daniel's name means Beltis, protect the king. Beltis was like the female equivalent of uh, Baal or Bel. And so... Did anybody find that instructive or interesting, or should I just move on? <laughs> okay, good. A little bit about Babylon. So we have here a, uh, a photo of Babylon from the uh, 6th century. No, wait a minute. They didn't have phones then. What we have here is an artist's rendition of what Babylon may have looked like in the 6th century B.C. And... Babylonian Empire at the time of Daniel 5 was under attack. They were being invaded by the Persians and the Medes. And right before the events described in this chapter, uh, the enemy armies had taken control of a city not 50 miles from Babylon. The Babylonians were losing this war. But... The Greek historian Herodotus talks about the walls of Babylon, says that they were 80 feet thick and 320 feet high. And it could be that the people who are partying in chapter 5 uh, just didn't believe that anybody could threaten their city or uh, invade a, a city with walls so substantial. Hmm. Okay, so let's look at Daniel 5. It's on the screens. Um, you can access it in whatever device you like if you don't want to read the screens. But 
Daniel 5. Many years later, Caleb mentioned that, uh, that after last week that chapter 5 jumps ahead a long time, about 30 years. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, just a, a comment, that's probably a euphemism for Belshazzar was drunk, which may explain, but not excuse, what he did next. He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem when Babylon sacked Jerusalem in 586. Belshazzar wanted to drink from these cups with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought the gold cups from the, uh, that were taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're using these cups that were taken from the temple, the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem, these cups that were consecrated, that were set aside for use only in service to and praise of the Almighty God. And they're using them to drink toasts to and even to worship a bunch of false gods. Daniel 5 continues, Suddenly, or it could be even immediately. This had immediate repercussions. They saw the fingers of a human hand writing, whoops, writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear. His legs gave way between him, uh, beneath him. In other words, this guy was scared. And then what happens is, is various, very similar to uh, uh, accounts that we've uh, seen in Daniel up to this point. I'll, I'll just summarize the next bit. King's scared, he wants to know what's going on. He calls in the enchanters and the astrologers and the fortune tellers, the wise guys in Babylon, the people, I think, who probably were counted on to mediate or to interpret between their uh, pantheon of different gods and the people. And King says, uh, I'll give a big reward, an extraordinary reward, to anybody who can read and interpret what's written on the wall here, but guess what? They can't. Just like they couldn't earlier in Daniel, they seem like a pretty incompetent group. And when they can't, the king gets even more scared. His face turns white. But then the queen mother, who's probably Belshazzar's, Belshazzar's mother, Heard what was happening, hurried to the banquet hall, said to Belshazzar, Long live the king, 
Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, and astrologers, and fortune tellers in Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, <coughs> solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. A couple thoughts. Don't you think maybe the king already knew about Daniel? And yet, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had made Jan, Daniel the chief of the wise guys. But when they were called in, Daniel wasn't with them. I don't know. It could be because he was getting old and it was hard for him to get around. Or I think more likely uh, uh, Belshazzar had no respect, or Daniel had no respect whatsoever for this king Belshazzar and really wasn't very interested in, in uh, working with him. But Daniel's brought before the king, and the king asks him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? And it's like, he knows it's Daniel. He just wants Daniel to know that he's an exile and a captive, and uh, I, the king, am in charge. I've heard you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems if you can read these words and tell me their meaning. You will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor. You will have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's a pretty substantial reward. But for Daniel, it, it has to be like deja vu. I mean, was, was, didn't he receive a promise very similar to this years before with Nebuchadnezzar? Hmm, that didn't seem to last. Notice how Daniel responds to King Belshazzar. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. Wow. I have no use, Daniel says, for anything that you could give me. Could be that Daniel already knew what the writing on the wall said and knew what the results were going to be, as you will find out soon. I will tell you what the writing means. And Daniel starts off speaking respectfully of King Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was a king who was pretty full of himself. Daniel says, your master, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that peoples of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. Pretty powerful guy. But when his heart and mind were puffed up, 
with arrogance. He was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. You remember this from last week. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys, ate grass like a cow, was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and it's God who appoints whoever he wants to be in charge of a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was sort of the the picture that you'd see in the dictionary beside the definition of arrogance. But Nebuchadnezzar learned humility. And then Daniel says to Belshazzar, to sum it up, but Belshazzar, you're no Nebuchadnezzar. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all, but you have not honored the God who, what? Gives you breath and controls your destiny. So God has sent his hand, this hand, to write this message. Notice, before Daniel interprets the writing on the wall and tells Belshazzar what's down the road for him, he makes sure that Belshazzar understands why God is saying to him what Daniel is now going to interpret. This is a message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. After hearing this, Belshazzar commands that Daniel be dressed in purple robes, gold chain hung around his neck, that Daniel was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom, and Daniel says, sure, whatever. Because he knows that before the day's out, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. On that very day, the Persians and the Medes conquered Babylon and uh, Belshazzar's uh, royal family was at an end. So, for Belshazzar, writing on the wall summed up the consequences that he faced for the choices that he'd made. He'd chosen to be arrogant, even towards God. He hadn't paid attention to the example of Nebuchadnezzar, who had humbled himself when faced with his arrogance. Belshazzar pretty much assumed that he was God. 
He could do whatever he wanted. He could spit in Yahweh's face. He was the center of his universe. He rejected humility, so he faced the writing on the wall. Belshazzar, your time's up. You haven't measured up. Your kingdom is gone. You've lost it. And Daniel chapter 5 shows us that very soon thereafter, the writing on the wall happened. Now compare Belshazzar with Belteshazzar. Compare the king with Daniel. Daniel knew that he was not God. Daniel, when he was first brought to Babylon, had refused to eat the, king, the king's food, the king's menu that had been very generously provided to him and his friends because he didn't want to pollute himself. Daniel wasn't going to be worshiping any 90-foot-tall statue any more than his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to worship. As a matter of fact, Daniel probably would have been next in line for the fiery furnace if God hadn't intervened. And Daniel had even had the courage and the trust in God to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of his dream about the tree, which was not at all good news to the king. And when you're king, if you hear good news, well, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel just described him as the one who can kill the ones he wants to kill and disgrace the ones he wants to disgrace. It can be a dangerous thing to bring bad news to the king, and yet Daniel did it anyway. And what about the metaphorical writing on Daniel's wall? What was his future? It's written in the last verse of the book of Daniel. As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest. Then at the end of the days, you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. The writing on the wall was quite different for Daniel, just as his life was quite different. The book of Daniel clearly shows that people must choose to honor and obey Almighty God if they want to receive God's rewards and avoid facing God's wrath. It's a very clear message in this book of Daniel. And what about the writing on the wall for us? What's the writing on our individual walls? To, to consider that question, we need to take a bit of a detour and uh, do some work clarifying some things about sin. Now, sin. Almost, he used a three-letter word on the stage. I mean, most people don't like that word, don't use that word, get angry when they hear people say that word. They think, if you're talking about sin, you're just trying to control me and take away all my fun, right? People just don't believe that there is such a thing as sin. I want to share something C.S. Lewis wrote about sin. 
C.S. Lewis was uh, trained and, and a professor in uh, English literature and taught at uh, Oxford and Cambridge. But on the side, he was really a pretty excellent theologian. And he, he in, in his book, um, uh, Mere Christianity, captured, I think, the essence of sin. Lewis wrote, the moment you have a self at all, there's a possibility of putting yourself first. Wanting to be the center. Wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin Satan taught the human race. Now, some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that's a mistake. The story in the book of Genesis rather suggests that some corruption in our sexual nature followed the fall and was its result, not its cause. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up their own, on their own, as if they created themselves. <clears throat> they could be their own masters. They could invent some sort of happiness for themselves apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all of what we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slaves, slavery, the long, terrible story of humans trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us. As a man invents an engine, a car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion or about God's truth. God cannot give happiness and peace apart from himself because it isn't there. There's no such thing. That's the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions devised. But each time, something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top. And it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. Seems to start up all right, and it runs for a few yards. Then it breaks down. They're trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. And I think Lewis's analysis of sin, his diagnosis is accurate and it's sharp. Sure, there are lots of sins, uh, greed, lust, contempt for otherness, others, uh, laziness, uh, the list goes on and on. But Lewis points out that all of our 
attempts, all of these sins come from one source, from our attempts to find ways to be happy without God. The core of sin, the sin from which all other sins grow, is what Satan taught us. The thought that we can be God's. Some people think, I don't really need God's protection, God's partnership. I can take care of myself. They think they can live without a deep and transforming relationship with God. They're good on their own. Some people think that freedom means being able to make our own rules and that we're fine without God sticking his nose in and changing, guiding our lives. Some people want life apart from the real king. They want to make themselves king. And what's the writing on the wall for those who choose to reject God in favor of some false god or even act as if they themselves are God? What's the writing on the wall for those who choose to live a life separate from God? The writing on the wall is clear. Those who choose to live apart from God will spend eternity apart from God. Away from God's light, God's love, God's warmth, God's power to restrain evil, which he's doing every day. They'll live eternally in emptiness, loneliness, meaninglessness, helplessness. But what about those who receive Jesus' gift of forgiveness and new life. What's the writing on the wall for those who say yes to his invitation to follow him, to trust him for all they need, for all we need? Those whose faith in Jesus leads them to surrender their lives to him and obey him because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us even more than we love ourselves, and he always wants what's best for us. What's the writing on the wall for those who trust Jesus and choose Jesus as their king? There are a number of places in Scripture that talk about it. One that I love is uh, toward the end of the book of Revelation. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. These are gone forever. That's the future that God promises to those who follow. This would be a great time for the worship team to come back up and, and get ready. Um, I'll wrap this up with one more C.S. Lewis quote. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something that's a little different than it was before, every choice. 
And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures, and with itself, or else one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures, and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Every day we make choices. And as we act on those choices, we build momentum, we establish a trajectory, not only for our lives, but for our eternity, with God or apart from God. We can see the writing on the wall, the end result of living with God as our king, or the end result of thinking that we can replace God and be our own kings. And bit of a challenge. I encourage you to spend some time thinking about choices that you've made recently and to ask God to show you whether those choices have you moving more toward God as your king or moving away from God and serving other gods, other kings, other masters. And, by the way, those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus don't do that perfectly. Hate to be the one to tell you. <laughs> and so all of us are going to find ways that our choices are not going the way that we want them to deep down in our soul. But it's a really good idea to just bring God into that and ask him to show us, what am I doing that moves me toward you? Is there anything that I'm doing that moves me away from you? And then to ask God for mercy and forgiveness for any bad choices. You ask, God gives it. Guaranteed. Jesus died on the cross and rose again as the absolute guarantee that when we ask for mercy and forgiveness, we get it. And ask God to show you how to be more dedicated to Jesus as your king and to help you, to help us live that kind of life that is dedicated to Jesus as the one true God of our lives.